This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Wearable tech, your Fitbit, smartwatch, and the like, they can already do things like measure your heart rate or how well you're sleeping just based on how you're moving or signals through your skin. So what do you think the next frontier might be in wearable tech? The next new thing devices can monitor and measure. Just think about it. Really think. I use my earbuds every day because I want to know how my brain changes based on all of the things that I do, because my brain is changing all the time. It's the most sophisticated learning apparatus that we have. So I use my earbuds as a way to understand what's happening to my brain as I play with my daughter, hang out with my cat, listen to music, uh, work, and it's really interesting. I learn a lot about myself. I learn a lot about what makes me happy and perform better. And when I'm really stressed, what impact that has on me. This is Tan Lee, co-founder and CEO of Emotive, one of a new crop of companies that sees great potential in BCI, or brain-computer interface technology. Lee believes the possibilities for such tech are endless, helping the elderly experiencing cognitive decline, empowering the disabled community to perform actions simply through thinking, even helping you understand yourself better, how to be happier or more efficient. Lee says brain-computer interface tech will one day be able to do all of these things through major advances in miniaturized electroencephalography technology, or EEG, which can read signals from the human brain and send them to amplifiers, which, in her company's case, are in those earbuds. It's giving you a feedback on your computer. So if I click on the icon to see what's going on in my brain at the moment, I can see what's happening in my brain. And then I can also see a report over the course of the day, when during the day my brain was in an optimal state. And then I can correlate that with what I was doing at that time. So when I look back on my afternoon on Sunday, I knew exactly what I was doing. So I knew why that was different to the barrage of back-to-back meetings I had on Friday afternoon, which caused my brain to be in much more intense state. And so that allows me to change my day a little bit, carve out more time for focused work so that I can actually work more optimally. Well, Tan Lee isn't the only one who thinks this is utterly fascinating. Her three-year-old daughter sees her at her desk, wearing her earbuds and checking in on her state of mind. She said, Mommy, I want to see. And I said, 
this is mommy's brain. And she said, I want to see my brain. <laughs> and I said, you're too little. <laughs> and so it doesn't fit her, but she's so intrigued by it. Currently, Emotive's earbuds are available only on their website. Lee says she hopes that one day they'll be available in stores for widespread use in the consumer market. But for now, her main clients are not consumers. They're employers. One of our clients is JLL. JLL is a large real estate organization. And JLL came to us saying that, you know, the future of work is changing rapidly. How can we design our workplaces better so that we can make sure that when people are at work, they're getting what they want from the work environment. So in that case, we will invite volunteers within the organization to sign up for a research study where they will wear a device for a certain period of time. And what we do is we capture brain data from those experiences in order to try and map out what is the relationship between an environment that's conducive to teamwork and collaboration versus something that doesn't actually achieve those desired outcomes. By the way, JLL is also known as Jones Lang LaSalle Inc., one of the largest real estate companies in the world. Ranked 185th on the Fortune 500, $20 billion in revenue last year, and 100,000 employees worldwide, some of which have been asked to participate in the kind of research study Lee mentioned. So what happens to the data those employees' brains are pumping out into Emotive's earbuds? What's really important about Emotive is that fundamentally we do not believe in how companies have transacted with data in the past. We're a company that was born about 10 years ago, and so we've seen a lot of the changes in the public's view of how data is mined for corporate advantage without the informed consent of the users and participants. And so we conduct ourselves in a very thoughtful and ethical manner in regards to data. The users need to have control of when they collect data how data is shared, and in fact, we don't sell or share your data with anyone without your explicit consent. Well, this is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and that was Tan Lee, co-founder and CEO of the neurotechnology firm Emotive, one of a new group of companies that's rapidly advancing the possibilities of brain-computer interface technology. Well, my guest today says the positive possibilities of such tech are exciting and essential, but it's naive to think that power to read brainwaves will be used exclusively for good because the potential for exploitation is just too great, both by corporations and governments. So she says now, as brain-computer face technology is starting to enter our lives and our minds, now is the time to establish new rules to defend the right to think freely and to keep our minds our own private property. Well, that comes from Nita Farahani, professor of law and philosophy at Duke University. Her new book is The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. Professor Farahani, welcome back to On Point. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I would like you to take us back to the first moment you realized that this revolution in tech was coming. You write about a 2018 summit at the uh, Wharton School in Pennsylvania. What happened there? So I had been studying neurotechnology and even consumer neurotechnology for quite a few years. But at that summit, 
Uh, early on in the summit, Josh Duyan stood up. He was one of the people at a company that was a startup called Control Labs. And he was showcasing this new device where they were taking electrodes and putting them into what looked like an everyday watch. And he held up his hands and he said, you know, wouldn't it be great if instead of having the kind of clumsy output that we have, that is these hands, these like sledgehammer-like devices, we could interact much more seamlessly with all of the rest of our technology with a device like the one on my wrist. Or if we wanted to type, we could type by thinking about typing rather than by having to pound away on a keyboard and how we've gone backwards in time typing on phones with our two thumbs. What he was showcasing was something altogether different than anything I had seen before because while I had played with and seen these devices in the past, they hadn't really solved the form factor. They were still uh, electrodes that you would have to wear across your forehead and a headband that was both silly looking and uncomfortable. But the applications were also much more limited. They were limited to things like meditation or, you know, um, personal gaming devices that you might play. This idea that you could take and make brain-wearable devices integrated into our everyday devices to power our interaction with all of the rest of our technologies, that was the moment when I realized all of the things that I'd been thinking about and worrying about for quite a long time suddenly were going to come true. And I was convinced, given the form factor, that it would just make sense for Apple to acquire control labs. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, I was I was floored when a year later it was Meta who acquired them instead. I thought that was the pivotal acquisition. And I then I was like, OK, it is time to get writing this book. <laughs> so, <laughs> A.K.A. Facebook, a.k.a. Mark Zuckerberg. OK, exactly. Exactly. I was like, if Mark Zuckerberg is investing in this technology, I, I mean, the things I was worried about, they are they're going to come true. And. It also just made it so clear to me that this is a mainstream movement. This is the next big thing. It's not a niche application for people who are interested at home and, you know, trying to quantify and see their own brains. This was going to become the way in which we interact with the rest of our technology by using our brains and our thoughts as the way we interact with everything around us. That was a revolutionary moment, and that acquisition was both terrifying, but also a call to action to me to get writing and to get this message out. Okay. So, but your view on um, the brain-computer interface technology is quite nuanced. I mean, you don't see it as a universal bad. So we're going to talk about um, its potentials, the complex potential um, in a minute here. But it doesn't it make sense, though, that this would be sort of the, the next frontier? I mean, you call it the last fortress uh, um, that technology hasn't yet fully um, overwhelmed. But the brain is very much how we, in a sense, what happens in the brain is how we define ourselves as human beings. So it is uh, it, it is what generates all our thoughts, feelings, actions. So it would seem very logical that um, technology would want to um, understand, harness, and maximize what it can do with that. Absolutely right. So first of all, you're right. My, my view is nuanced. And my view is nuanced because I believe that this technology is the next step for humans in ways that can be deeply empowering. And I also think the fact that our brains have remained this black box and mysterious even to us, that we can only access through self-reflection in ways that aren't objective, 
um, you know, it, it, that, that's not good for addressing any of the major causes of human suffering, such as neurological disease and disorder and mental illness, or even just understanding ourselves. So, of course, it makes sense that this is where the next step in both self-quantification, but also the thing that we as humans would be pushing for, which is access to and understanding our own brains, would be happening. It also just makes sense that we have all of these clumsy interfaces between us and other technology and the ability to be able to much more seamlessly interact with other technology would be deeply appealing to other companies. But I'm also a skeptic on motivations um, and, you know, both I think my own cultural heritage, but, mm. you know, just the work that I do as um, as an ethicist and, and a law professor, it's always made me look at, okay, but what are the complex set of motivations that bring these different organizations to the table. Yeah, that mix is what makes you our favorite kind of guest, Professor Farhani. So, <laughs> Thank so you. We'll, we'll talk a lot more about the positives, the negatives, and really most importantly, what kind of questions you say we should be asking ourselves now as a society, as this technology comes at us at full pace. So Nita Farhani, stand by for just a moment. We'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Nita Farahani joins us today. She's a professor of law and philosophy at Duke University, and she's out with a new book titled The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. Uh, Professor Farahani, you've actually worn some of these devices um, that currently exist yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about what it it is that you wore, how it worked, and what it felt like to have it? Sure. So um, I have been, I guess, toying around in some ways with many of these devices, but also using them personally for some applications. So the earliest of these devices were kind of hard uh, plastic devices that would go across your forehead and some of them tuck behind your ears or fit tightly uh, across your scalp. Um, And the idea was to make contact with dry electrodes to your forehead or to different parts of your scalp that could allow the electrical activity in your brain to be picked up and then interact with, uh, through Bluetooth, some kind of application on your phone. Um, And the more recent devices, as you described and as the conversation with Tan Lee 
uh, made clear that I also have had access to are electrodes that are embedded inside of earbuds. And these feel just like the normal earbuds you would use to make a phone call or listen to music or, you know, do a Zoom call. Or headphones where the soft cups that go around your ears have electrodes inside of them as well. So you can't detect them. They're just like the rest of the technology that you would wear or one of these watches that has a sensor inside. I've used them primarily uh, both to test them out, but also for meditation. Mm. So I'm not great at self-meditation, being able to both keep my focus and ability to stay in that state, but also, like, am I doing it right? You know. Mm. <laughs> and so, um, what's what's neat about these devices is the interaction with an application lets you get real-time what's called neurofeedback. So if I get my brain states into an, a way that brings down my stress levels and uh, shows that I'm in this kind of meditative state, you have signatures in your brain that can be detected and decoded that suggest that, then you get something like chirping birds or uh, you know some other kind of audible feedback. And that's been really helpful for me. I'm a chronic migrainer, uh, and high stress levels can really trigger a migraine for me. Mm-hmm. And using these as sort of a preventive tool, something where even if I just spend a few minutes of bringing my stress levels down and remaining in a meditative state, for me have been really helpful in limiting the frequency and the severity of my migraines. Mm. You know, it... it it occurs to me that there are then there's so many potential applications, positive applications, right, for for this technology. Like, you know, I've suffered from depression for most of my life, and I think it yes. would be kind of amazing to yeah. have a device that would give me some sort of feedback to say, you know, your your brain patterns right now are are indicating I don't know some sort of uh, negative feedback loop that's going to deepen your depression or something, anything like that. No, you're right. You're right. So first, I'm I'm so sorry that it's, uh, it's been okay, grappled you know. with, but I mean, but that's you know, you're one of of many millions of people who are grappling with different um, effects of the brain, whether it's migraines or depression or people who suffer for epilepsy, for example, and need an early warning of having an epileptic seizure. These devices can be quite powerful. In fact, I talk about some of those in in the book from using both feedback but also neurostimulation, which has been Mm. transformative for some people with depression or people who have ADHD, for example. There are a lot of studies that show that using neurofeedback, especially in children, over a number of weeks can actually be more powerful than drugs or drugs alone and certainly have far fewer side effects or somebody who has epileptic epileptic seizures like um, a very close family friend of ours died of an epileptic seizure without early warning. She was alone at the time. She vomited from the epileptic seizure and then died from, they believe, choking on her own Mm. vomit. If she had had a one hour, you know, in advance early warning of having that seizure, she could have gotten herself to safety. She could have, you know, made sure that she took just in time medication there. You know, there's so much good that could come from being able to track our own brains and improve them, enhance them, use neurofeedback. Our, our own daughter, our eight-year-old, while she doesn't use one of these neurological devices, uses um, biofeedback through a heart rate monitor, which has been gamified. She can play games which get harder when her stress levels and heart rate increase. And then the way that she wins the game is by being able to self-control, by emotionally regulate and 
learning those skills at a young age, I think, are powerful and important. So I'm definitely not, uh, you know, a Luddite when it comes to this technology. I think it's both coming, but it also has a lot of promise for humanity. If done right, if implemented with the right safeguards, if used in ways that benefit individuals, I think Mm -hmm. it can be incredibly transformative. That poor word, if, it carries so much weight on its shoulders. (laughs) It does. It does. And unfortunately, you know, I have to to say that because I – you know, I, I am somebody who is deeply optimistic, and I want the good of this technology for humanity. But, but I see the risks, and and I see the risks, you know, especially in this domain, because there is really nothing more sensitive and fundamental than what it means to be human than having that space of inner monologue, of private thought, of being able to entertain and turn over ideas in your own mind without fear of it being misused by other people, accessed by other people, commodified by companies, interfered with by governments. And and the potential of connecting our brains to technology makes all mm. of those risks a possibility. So just as a, an aside thought, there's the technology in and of itself, the hardware. Then there's the, you know, the means by which we can interpret it, right? The the kind of feedback it, it, the machines generate. Mm-hmm. But do you, uh, how much confidence at this moment do you have about the interim phase, like the analysis of what the brain, those EEG signals are sending? Do we actually know and understand uh, how to read? Uh, what the the signals are? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, a lot of people ask me, how good are the devices? And um, my answer to that is, it depends on what you're using them for. You know, can it decode your literal thoughts? You know, the, the true inner monologue that you're having? No, both the technology itself, like the electrodes, the sensors, the hardware, um, have improved vastly over the past decade. But there's still some noise and interference and different people may have them applied in different ways that aren't quite the right fit to pick up exactly the right signal. And there can be interference from muscle twitches or eye blinks or other devices in your environment because it's electrical activity that is picking up. And then the software, the AI, (laughs) I think everybody knows that AI has been having just, you know, exponential growth in its capabilities. Um, And what we're picking up here from the brain through these devices, what what they're detecting really is is patterns of, of data. And those patterns of data increasingly can be interpreted and decoded with the sophistication of the algorithms at play. So I think depending on what we're talking about, it can be very accurate and very good for basic brain states like attention and boredom and cognitive decline and stress and are you happy or are you sad? It can be very accurate for probing the brain for information through particular signals of recognition in the brain. But it, it doesn't do, unless it's implanted neurotechnology, there's not very good uh, real-time decoding of, of speech, for example, even though that is coming in many ways. And in some ways, we can talk about even your intention to type or to communicate or send a text message can be decoded with this technology. So <laughs> intention. It just depends. Okay. <laughs> well, intention, right? I say that right. because there's, like, there's you thinking in your mind and having a kind of moment of self-reflection, and then you intending to type something, which is speech that you mean to go from your mind out into the rest of the world. And that has different representation in the brain. It's easier to decode 
speech you intend to communicate than that inner monologue. Yeah. So this is where we get into minority report territory, but we're going to yes. hold that hold yes. that <laughs> hold that thought if I can use that pun here for for a moment. Um cuz what it, now what I'd like to do is sort of push into um the possible futures that you think through in the book The Battle for Your Brain because uh, we'll get to governments in a few minutes, but I think the most immediate place of change we might see was hinted at by Tan Lee at the beginning of our show because yes. workplaces w- would be very, very interested or are very, very interested in whatever means. They already are, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they can do to, to uh, make work better, workers more efficient, what have you. So if you don't mind, I want to read a little bit of a scenario that you imagine here at the beginning Please. of the book, and then you can sort of talk us through the rest of this. So this is what Nita Farahani says we might um, be closer to than we think. So it goes like this. You're in the zone. You can't even believe how productive you've been. Your memo is finished and sent. Your inbox is under control, and you're feeling sharper than you have in a decade. Sensing your joy, your playlist shifts to your favorite song, sending chills up your spine as the music begins to play. You glance at the program running in the background on your computer screen and notice a now-familiar sight that appears whenever you're overloaded with pleasure. Your theta brainwave activity decreasing in the right central and right temporal regions of your brain. You mentally move the cursor to the left and scroll through your brain data over the past few hours. You can see your stress levels rising as the deadline to finish your memo approached, causing your beta brainwave activity to peak right before an alert popped up, telling you to take a brain break. But what's that unusual change in your brain activity when you're asleep? It started earlier in the month. You compose a text to your doctor in your mind and send it with a mental swipe of your cursor. Could you take a quick look at my brain data? Anything to worry about? So what happens next in your imagined scenario here? So from there, uh, <laughs> you know, there's there's a number of different pieces from the employer uh, looking at the brain data and sending a message to the employees saying, congratulations on your brain metrics over the past quarter. And, um, you know, you've earned another performance bonus. Uh, you're excited about that. You still have your earbuds in, not thinking about all of the data that you're giving to your employer as you go home, uh, jamming to the music and having forgotten that brainwave data is being collected at the same time. And then you come to the office the next day and a somber cloud has fallen over the office and you discover that the government has subpoenaed all of the brainwave data along with all of the other information about employees because they're looking for co-conspirators for a crime. Hmm. And, you know, and it's funny, that that scenario, my, my brilliant editor at St. Martin's Press, he invited me to write a scenario that could really put it all together in kind of one easy-to-understand narrative. You know, what's the full spectrum of this from the promise, which is your ability to do things like hone your own focus and attention and track your own brain activity and bring down your own stress levels and have real-time feedback about when you're suffering from cognitive overload to the risks and the ways in which employers are already using this technology where, you know, it's dystopian in what I describe it as, I believe, of having your brain be part of the performance metrics. There's so much happening in the workplace right now on productivity scoring and, you know, the I think, over-surveillance of employees in ways that 
really are not helping morale or the dignity of work. And um, this these brain metrics are already being used uh, by companies and increasingly will. And then the frightening possibility, which we've already seen with other kinds of personal health data, whether it's Fitbit data or heart rate data, which has been subpoenaed by law enforcement and used in criminal cases, and the idea that once you open up your brain passively thinking that you're using it to track your own attention, that all is fair game and can give a lot of insights. The example that I use in that scenario is that they're looking for synchronization of brain activity between different workers. turns out when you're working with people, you have higher degrees of synchronization in your brainwave patterns, and you could actually use that to figure out who's collaborating, who's, you know, developing a union, who's working together, who you wouldn't expect to see those patterns of synchronization. And so as I start to imagine all of that, and all of those scenarios are possible with existing research and existing technology, mm. you know, it. <clears throat> I think it makes clear what the kind of dystopian possibilities are of surveillance of the brain. Well, you even talk about in this imagined scenario that, you know, maybe you might find a coworker attractive and that would be recorded uh, yes, in your brain yes. activity. Of course, and right, that would... you can pick up those. I mean, you can yeah. tell amorous feelings that, you know, you're these, these inward and deeply held feelings um, are not things you would want to reveal. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story, Magda, which is my, my eight year old um, has her first crush. She'll be embarrassed that I'm sharing this with you. And, um, with the world, in fact. Oh, yeah, with the world, with the world. But um, her her friend uh, apparently has a crush on her as well. It's the most mortifying thing to them possible that they both have a crush, right? It's the thing that everybody is teasing them about, even though we think it's, you know, darling and wonderful. Uh, and but But that, like, imagine when you were a child and you have these early crushes, which are so incredibly formative, you don't want anybody else to know, and you're in a classroom required to wear, you know, neural interface brain wearables to track your attention and focus, which can pick up so much more information, including, you know, these kind of amorous feelings. Those are things you should be able to keep to yourself. Those are mm. things that other people shouldn't have access to. Those are things that are so formative to self-identity. And so when I talk about these ideas of mental privacy and the importance of this last bastion of freedom, this last fortress... I think it's the most important for fortress. It's the one that's most formative to who you are as a human being. Yeah. You know, about the workplace then, it seems like there's two major sets of issues here. One is, A, how this technology can have an impact on workers, both positively and, and negatively. But B, um, in terms of the economy that we all function in, this all sounds like surveillance capitalism potentially on mega mega steroids. And, right. And so I, I, we've got about a minute and a half before our, the next break, Professor Farahani. Um, can you just tell, walk us through a couple of the major questions, therefore, you think we should be asking ourselves as a society right now when it comes to commercial or capitalism's use of this technology? Right. I think the first and most important is, is there any justified use of brain metrics by employers? And I outline an example in the book of commercial drivers who are already having their brain activity monitored for fatigue levels. Um, and if you were just measuring that, the only thing that you were extracting through the algorithms and brainwave data was whether or not a commercial pilot or truck driver was sleepy or awake and it was more precise than other kinds of information, maybe those are circumstances in which we might think it's a good use of the technology. 
But when you're using it to track attention, when periods of mind-wandering are punished rather than celebrated as the most important moments of insights, when you're introducing a more kind of global surveillance of even what a person is thinking and feeling, I think that can be so undermining for just the abilities for humans to flourish, to feel like they have trust in the workplace, to want to continue to think freely. So those are the kind of worries that I have in that context. So again, the need to put guardrails, legal and ethical guardrails around this. Uh, We're going to explore more about what that means regarding the, you know, what governments might be interested in when it comes to being able to you know, use technology to understand what's going on in your brain. So, Professor Farahani, just hang with us for another minute. We'll be right back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And just a heads up uh, on something we're working on for next week, because parents and teens, we really want to hear from you because we're going to be talking about teenagers and mental health and the you know avalanche of studies that show that mental health is a, a real struggle for many teens in this day and age, particularly because of, or let's say it's contributed by, Digital devices. So parents and teens, we, we want to hear your stories. Um, have you struggled or seen your loved ones struggle with depression, sadness? How has the digital device played into that? You know, is it possible that the digital device is something that actually helps lift uh, mental health in you or, or your teen? Or have you seen the opposite? We want to hear all your experiences and all your stories about how digital devices and, yes, of course, social media – Um, play into your mental health and that of your teenager. Now, I understand the profound irony of me asking you to pick up your smartphone to send us this message, but if you haven't already, you can do it via our OnPoint Vox Pop app, which is available at your app store. Or if you want to put your digital device down and find a regular phone, by all means, please do. And call us at 617-353-0683. That's for next week. Today, we are talking with Professor Nita Farahani. Her new book is The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. And just before the break, Professor Farahani had talked about, you know, there's a world in which uh, kids in classrooms might, you know, put on headbands and teachers would would be able to measure how much they're focusing or how much they're uh, able to concentrate on a given assignment. Well, she wasn't just making that up because
because that world actually exists. The Wall Street Journal recently visited a classroom just a few hours outside of Shanghai to see how both AI and brain-computer interface technology is being used in Chinese classrooms. For this fifth grade class, the day begins with putting on a brain wave sensing gadget. Students then practice meditating. The device is made in China and has three electrodes, two behind the ears and one on the forehead. These sensors pick up electrical signals sent by neurons in the brain. The neural data is then sent in real time to the teacher's computer. So while students are solving math problems, a teacher can quickly find out who's paying attention and who's not. A report is then generated that shows how well the class was paying attention. It even details each student's concentration level at 10-minute intervals. It's then sent to a chat group for parents. Well, that's from a Wall Street Journal documentary about AI in China. And the journal's reporters noted that it's not entirely clear what the headbands are measuring or if they're accurate, but you can see the potential in the use and purpose of this kind of technology. Now, combine that with what we already know about China's well-established surveillance state that is carefully observing its citizens. Here in this Shanghai surveillance center, no resident goes unwatched. Hundreds of millions of cameras are installed all over China. We have algorithms that automatically recognize certain behaviors. If someone isn't wearing a mask, for example, we immediately detect this wrongdoing. So that's a little bit about China's established surveillance state from the documentary wing of the German broadcaster DW. Well, joining us now is Margaret Kozel. She's an assistant professor and teaches international affairs at the Georgia Institute of Technology, and she's currently on leave to the Savannah River National Laboratory. Professor Kozel, welcome to you. Thank you, Magna. Um, I'm very here, happy to be here to talk about emerging technology and international security. Okay. Um, so I, you know, I started my work as a PhD chemist, um, and having experience in the high-tech startup field before I got to this work. And by the way, I'm an associate professor, uh, not an assistant professor. Oh, you know what? In fact, I had the word associate written on my page, but somehow my brain and mouth said assistant. My apologies. If I'd been wearing the right kind of device, maybe I wouldn't have made that mistake. Um, but, but, so, but so go ahead, tell us a little bit more. Um, and and China is an easy place for us to focus because, again, they already have such an established surveillance state. How, how Do we know how the Chinese government is viewing the potential of this kind of brain-computer interface technology? So there is a whole wealth of information to unpack there in your question. Um, and I do have to start out by saying that while I am currently a professor of international affairs at Georgia Tech, um, I have to be sure to convey that my views do not necessarily reflect the positions of the Department of Energy, Department of Defense, or any other organization that I've been affiliated. Back to your question. So some of the re empirical and quantitative work that I've done has looked at this question of likely adoption of brain-computer interfaces, as well as other neurotechnologies, particularly by China in comparison to the United States. So 
First of all, understanding, uh, you know, the inner workings of the PRC often is very difficult, but China has been quite um, articulate on some of its aspects of where they're going with what they call their brain, the Brain China um, project. In particularly, they have this articulated vision of what they call one body two wings. So that's for building the core and developing the applications. And some of this is intentionally going to effective approaches for diagnosis, intervention of brain disorders, and some of it is intentionally to more security implications in terms of the types of technologies. Okay, excuse me. Pardon me, but let's so let's focus on that second part because that's really what where we wanted to right. take the conversation. What can you just give me what the maybe top concern is amongst the the national security establishment here regarding China China's view of the potential of brain computer interface technology? So there hasn't been a, articulated a specific concern here within the United States with respect to any details. Okay. It is this, in the broader concerns about Chinese technology, Chinese um, acquisition, and the ability for them to challenge us. Um, one of the concerns that in my work we have articulated is that because of the likelihood looking at these different factors and studying them, not just the technology, but understanding how different technology gets deployed, it is more likely for these kind of technologies, in particular BCIs, to be deployed and adopted first in the PRC. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now uh, help me understand something. Uh, it, does China see ha, have this phrase, the sixth domain? I've seen that floating around. What does that mean? So that's in reference to the warfighting domains. Uh-huh. Uh, so we have warfighting domains in the United States, too. So the sixth domain, warfighting domain in China, in the People's Liberation Army, is the cognitive domain. And the cognitive domain can be split up into a number of different pieces. Um, the biggest piece is things like information warfare, which that can be everything from, you know, misuse, mischaracterization, disinformation via traditional propaganda to uh, use of the Internet. But it also can be things that are targeting neurotechnologies, targeting the brain, targeting sort of the the ability to undermine the self. Wow. Okay. So Associate Professor Margaret Kozel uh, teaches international affairs at Georgia Tech and currently on leave to the Savannah River National Laboratory. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're most welcome. Okay. So Professor Farahani, just give me your quick thoughts about what the China example tells us we need to be think thinking about. So I think a couple of things. One is you know, we can think about it from a national security perspective in the United States. So the Biden administration in, in late December 2021 um, sanctioned uh, a number of Chinese companies 
for creating so-called or purported brain control weapons and on this kind of idea of uh, the cognitive domain. Um, there is both influence campaigns. This is what we're worried about, for example, with TikTok and, and shaping shaping views and minds, but also picking up biometric data and precise profiles on American citizens. But also this anxiety about a kind of arms race and brain-computer interface. And that could be everything from the development of um, kind of super soldiers. So there's been a lot of talk about that. There's even a conference that was just recently held by the Commerce Department here in the U.S. with all of the major um, implanted BCI manufacturers about whether there should be export controls to prevent China from using our technology and what could be a race for capabilities within the military. But then beyond the kind of, you know, domain of influence and military use, there's been these anxieties around the creation of weapons that could disable or disorient mm. minds. And while the Havana syndrome, um, you know, uh, cases have largely been dismissed by the intelligence community at this point as being fueled by or funded by foreign adversaries, there's still a lot of worry about that kind of focus of developing kinds of technologies, whether it's electromagnetic or microwave technologies that could be aimed at at human brains and minds. And so, I, you know, I think we need to worry about it from a national security perspective. And then we also need to learn from and worry about government use of the technology in, in surveillance or in interference with freedom of thought. Mm -hmm. And so I worry about it not just from a, you know, U.S. versus China perspective, but what their example of the surveillance state shows us of interfering with what I think is the most important, again, aspect of what it means to have human flourishing, the ability to think freely. Mm. And whether or not the technology works, if you're required, whether in the workplace or in everyday life, to wear brain-computer interface technology that could be intercepted by the government, the informational asymmetry is usually so powerful that you might be afraid to even think bad thoughts or dissident thoughts. Um, so, you know, I think I think their example teaches us a lot about the risks of the technology. That's right. And not just in the national security context, just in our That's own right. lives based on what uh, governments can do to their own people uh, anywhere in the world. I mean, look, we're already living in a world where people are afraid to say certain things. I mean, I, I, can, right. I can very much see a next step being like afraid to even think them. So in the last few minutes of the conversation, Professor Farhani, I mean, the real purpose of your book is, as you say, to get us to start thinking about a new aspect of freedom that we need to incorporate into uh, social norms, into ethical guidelines, into our legal structure. And you call it cognitive liberty, which includes mental privacy, freedom of thought, and self-determination. So tell us more about how you, you conceive of this notion of cognitive liberty. Thank you. That, that I think, is part of what gives me the optimism and the hope that we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation. You know, we're at the forefront of this transformational moment with this technology, which really is going to become much more ubiquitous and part of our everyday lives. And the question is, are we going to give up our rights, our mental privacy, our freedom of thought just as easily as we've given up all of the rest of our privacy in exchange for the convenience of typing or swiping with our minds? And I think we at this moment, at this juncture, at this earlier stage, have a choice to make. 
to change the terms of service and put it in favor of individuals. I see cognitive liberty as an update to our conception of liberty, but in the digital age. It's a concept that applies well beyond just neurotechnology. It applies to how we think about social media and addictive technologies and neuromarketing and weapons that are being designed to attack the brain. And how I think of it is both as a legal, but also a cultural and social norm. As a legal norm, it would invite us and require us to update our international human rights to recognize this right to cognitive liberty as a civil and political right, which would direct us to update three existing rights, our right to privacy to explicitly include the right to mental privacy, freedom of thought to apply more broadly than just religious freedom and belief, but to include a right not to have our thoughts used against us and not to be punished for our thoughts and not to have our thoughts manipulated. And self-determination, updating that uh, uh, from a concept of what's really been understood as a political and collective right to an individual right to access our own brains, to mm. be able to you know, enhance or change them and to determine how we want to shape our own mental experiences. Mm. Uh, well, I, wa I, I want to continue living in a world where my last truly safe and protected space is inside my own mind, right? It's our, it's our final too, retreat, yes. right? <laughs> yes, yes. It is our last <laughs> fortress. And it's, it's one I think we can't afford to quietly let go. I think it's so urgent that people join the conversation and the call to action now because it will be too late to claw it back later. Mm -hmm. But it isn't too late now to really define the way in which this technology will be integrated into society and how yeah. our relationships to others will be when it comes to the most precious thing we have, which is our mind, our ability to think freely. Well, we have one minute left, Professor Farahani, and there's something you teased us with a little earlier that I'd love to sort of close with, and that is your own family background, your cultural yes. background, and how this plays into how you're thinking about these technologies. So I'm Iranian-American. My parents left Iran really uh, a decade before the revolution, but always intended to go back. Weren't able to as the political unrest occurred, but all of my first cousins, all of my aunts and uncles still live in Iran. And I've grown up in a world in which I understand and see people who are afraid to speak freely, family members who are afraid to tell us what's happening for fear of being persecuted. And that world, those conversations, I think attune me to the ways in which technology can be misused, the ways in which surveillance can interfere with people's ability to rise up, defend their own freedom, defend their own rights. It's a world I don't want us to uh, unveil through a kind of Orwellian future of neurotechnology, but to ensure we safeguard our right to think freely. Right. But you also talk about how in the Iran example, you see the power of technology to mo mobilize people for change. Yes. All those yes. Iranian women, for example. Yes. Yeah. And the Twitter, you know, the use of Twitter during the Green Revolution, there is hope and there is peril. And we get to decide which one we decide to champion in life. Well, Nita Farahani, professor of law and philosophy at Duke University. The book is The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. We have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>